Well, good morning. My name is John. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I uh, have the joy of being one of the pastors here, and uh, very grateful that you're joining us this morning. Um, if you were here last week, uh, my friend uh, Shell came and preached for us, and uh, he messaged me. I messaged him. We were in Dallas visiting my, my in-laws for American Thanksgiving, and I messaged Shell afterwards. I was like, oh, hey, how did it go? He's like, oh, it was great. But next time, do you mind just turning the heat on if, uh, before I come and preach? He said it was freezing in here. And I said, this is how, uh, I guess the heat didn't turn on. So I just told him that's how I keep job security. I just don't tell anyone how to turn the heat on in the building. And then um, you guys need me here. Uh, but the other thing that Shell talked about is, is the church calendar. And uh, that's not something we talk about a lot in this community. Uh, and you may or may not come from a tradition that talks about the, the church calendar. But the basic idea of what the church calendar does is it does two things. First, it helps us to keep time, to keep time as followers of Jesus, to know what time it is. And then the second thing that it helps us to do is rehearse the story of the Bible in a given year. And so this is an example. I think uh, um, Shell showed this last week. Uh, this is kind of an example of what the church calendar looks like. And so uh, there's two sections. In the top half, the first half of the year, you focus on the story of God. And then the second half, you sto- focus on the story of the people of God. And we keep a modified version of this calendar. So we're starting Advent now, and then we'll do Christmas. Then we'll focus on a gospel, the story of Jesus. That's why we go through a gospel at the beginning of every year, leading to Easter and Pentecost. And then we do whatever we want in ordinary time. I always thought that was, like, the best. I'm terrible at naming things. Like, all of my Google Docs are, like, the same name. And I feel like that's how they named this. They were just like, I don't know, ordinary time? It's like, yeah, okay, ordinary time. Um, So... Shell said last week is the end of the Christian calendar. It was the last week in in the Christian calendar. And he preached on uh, Christ the King, that beautiful poem and hymn that's from Colossians 1, where Jesus is reigning and ruling and he's the cosmic king. It comes at the end of the year. And so this week is the, the first week in the church calendar. It's like our New Year. And it begins with Advent. And this word Advent means that we prepare, we prepare ourselves, prepare to celebrate that in Jesus God has come, and prepare ourselves to receive our King in in Jesus. Now, in general, the preparation for birth and, and for Christmas in our culture is usually like a fun preparation. There's excitement, there's anticipation. So if you have ever had a baby, then you know that like when you find out you're pregnant, there's all this excitement and joy, and then you tell everybody. And then you start preparing all the different things that you need. You start preparing the baby room. And then there's leading up to the, the birth of the child. And then you get to tell everybody the, the baby is born. There's lots of excitement. And Christmas is the same way in our culture. There's lots of excitement. It's a joyous time. I don't know. There's, uh, there's like the big question of when do you start playing the Christmas songs? Uh, when's too early? I always say it's always too early. Um, my daughter, uh, one of them, just loves Ariana Grande's Christmas music. And she'll just play it in the summer randomly. And I'm always like, it's too early. It's always too early for this song. Um, But, you know, there's Christmas, all this anticipation. There's gifts to buy. There's lots of Christmas parties to go to. Um, There's all sorts of different things that are happening. We're preparing to go back to Alberta for Christmas to visit my family. And so there's there's lots of fun and anticipation and positivity and excitement. So that's the way that, that kind of the Christmas season starts in our culture. But in the church calendar, Advent starts quite differently. 
And I want you to listen to how one person describes this. Her name is Fleming Rutledge. She's an American Episcopalian priest. And uh, she's kind of my Advent guru. She, she uh, started, or she's still alive. She's about 85 years old. But she preached these words in 1975, which is the first year that she became a pastor. Here's what she says. Advent is the deepest place in the church calendar. Advent for the world is this time of counting shopping days before Christmas. This exciting time where we're getting ready, where tinsel is coming out, where the tree is going up, all this anticipation, all this excitement, and all this joy. But Advent for the church is a season of the shadows. It's a season of the works of darkness, a season in which the church looks straight down into its own heart and finds there the absence of God. And the title of this sermon that she preached is what she's famously known for. It's called Advent Begins in the Dark. Advent Begins in the Dark. Now, some of us might want to say, like, you know, bah humbug to you, Fleming Rutledge. You know, like, come on, don't be a Grinch uh, on the first day. We got the tree up, everything's exciting here. Why do you have to go and ruin Christmas? And it's because of the way that we think about Christmas in our culture. But I want to remind you that this is actually, the darkness is the way that all of the biblical stories start when they talk about the birth of Jesus. Let's just take a look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, which is where, what we'll be looking at in uh, our Advent study, and then we'll pick it back up in about March. So listen to how the story of, of Luke starts. Chapter 1, verse 5. It says, In the days of King Herod of Judah... Now, just with those, that short little statement, the author is trying to tell us that this is a dark time for God's people. We looked at King Herod's life early last year when we looked at the Gospel of Matthew. Was he a good king or a bad king? He's a pretty, pretty bad guy. And it also means that he's a puppet king. They're ruled over by another nation, the Roman people. And so he's signaling that this is a time of darkness for these people. So he continues, In the days of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. So these two, these two people, are they good people or bad people? They're really good. They're really righteous people. They're, they're like the aunts and uncles that you actually wouldn't mind seeing, you know, when you go home for Christmas. They're just like wonderful, nice people. But what did these wonderful, nice people experience? Verse 7, but they had no children. Because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. It's really important for us to understand the context here. In this society, it's, a, it's not an individualistic society like we live in right now. So having kids is a choice. You can have kids when you want, if you want, uh, and that's not a problem. They lived in a collective society. And so having kids was like something that you needed to do to grow the group of people that you had. It was an imperative. If you wanted to show yourself to be a good citizen, a good part of that, uh, that tribe, then you would have kids, and these people are without kids. And so this would bring great dishonor and shame to them. And the way that they thought of it at this time is that if you couldn't have kids, it means that you were probably cursed by God. That was God cursing you and not blessing you. And so for Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're living not only in a time where it's dark, but their own personal story is covered in darkness. And these words here, that they were well along in years, are so important. I think for me, I just tend to read over them very quickly. And you just got to remember, this is a whole life. Ever since they were very, very small, they've been told, this is what you do. This is what it means to be blessed like God. And they're well along in years. And they've just been waiting and waiting and waiting and hoping and hoping that they could have kids. And it's just never panned out, even though they've lived this good and righteous life. 
Some of us know what that feels like. And so this is how the story starts, with these words. Now, we might want to say, again, we might want to say, okay, well, I know these people are in darkness, but just keep reading. It gets exciting. They have a kid. And then if you keep reading even farther, you find out that their, their friend Mary has a child too, and that child is Jesus, the Savior of the world. And so we, we, we have this impetus to kind of read ahead and get ahead of ourselves in the story. Um, so we, and we also then wonder, why should we go back and look at the darkness? What's the point of doing that? Why would we bother doing that when Jesus has already come? Well, I want to just zoom out for a minute and take us uh, back through a, a quick perspective on what the story of the Bible looks like up until this point in time and how the people, God's people, have dealt with this story. So the story of the Bible actually begins in darkness. So we've got a black circle here to represent that. And then God comes in and he creates he speaks and he brings light into the world. And so there's this hope that the light is coming in the darkness. But then we see that darkness comes in through the rebellion of, of the first people in the story. And it seems like everything is lost. They're moved out of the place of light. But God doesn't give up on them. Instead, he chooses a group of people and he says, you'll be my people and I'm going to put my light in you. And if you walk with me, if you obey me, then my light will actually shine out into the world through you. And bless the world. But as we move on through the story, we see a, a, within a, about a hundred years, these people have rebelled, and it's a time of darkness again. They've not listened to God, and they find themselves outside of the place that God has put them. It's a time of darkness. But at the same time, these voices are raised within their community, these people that are called the prophets. And these prophets come in, and what their job is to do is to describe the darkness. They name the darkness that people are living in. That's the, the reading that we had this morning, which was from Isaiah. He's one of these prophets, and he says this, the people are walking in darkness, and they're living in the land of darkness. And there's many poetic sayings describing how dark their world is. But at the same time, he points to this hope that's coming, that people walking in darkness have seen a great light, that the light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And that's where Luke picks up the story, is kind of in this moment of darkness with the light of hope. And we have to remember at the same time that people like Zechariah and Elizabeth have just been living their whole life in this tension. And the people of Israel for just decades and decades have been living their life in this tension of living in a place of darkness with hope. And of course we know that Jesus comes into this moment as the light of the world. And then there's a terrible moment at the end of his life when we, we think that the, the light in Jesus has been extinguished, where he dies. But then he comes up from the grave. As the song says, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And he stands in victory, and sin has lost its grip on me. And it seems like, once again, this moment of complete light. No more darkness. But the story doesn't stop there. The people who follow Jesus, out of the 11 that were left after Jesus rose again, 10 of them end up dying very horrible deaths. Most of Jesus' followers are killed. The church is terribly persecuted. And, and there's still this great darkness that's in the world. We kind of live in this moment, like I'm trying to show here, of overlap between Jesus bringing the light and this moment of darkness that we still live in. And so both Jesus and the biblical authors write about this coming hope as well. The second coming of Jesus. And I think, again, in, in, our, in, in Western Christianity, we kind of get focused on the wrong details about this next circle of light. 
We try to figure out like exactly when it is and exactly, you know, uh, what's going to happen before. I don't know if you've ever watched The Simpsons where they try to calculate the uh, moment that Jesus is coming back. It's quite comical. Um, I won't try to reenact it here. But uh, this kind of idea, but that's not really the point. The point is that Jesus will return. And there is this light that's coming, this hope that's going to happen when Jesus will fully usher in the kingdom of God. One of my favorite pictures that the Bible gives of this is of a tree in Revelation. And it talks about this tree that will grow and the the leaves of this tree will be used for the healing of the world and the wiping away of every tear. And I just think about that, all the ways that we try to partner with God and with each other, all the sadnesses of our lives will come. When Jesus comes again, he'll wipe away those tears and we'll get to partner with him and partner with each other for the healing of the world. This is the beautiful picture that really moves me this moment of full light that we have to look forward to. But here's the key, and here's what I want to get to this morning, is that we live in this moment right here. In this moment where we're living in the darkness in between these two poles of light, which very much mirrors where Elizabeth and Zechariah are in the previous dark moment. And so their story actually has a lot more to say to us And we might think, and going back and listening to this story and the prophetic voices that come out of this time are so key to us to learn how to live today. Theologians have called this moment the now but not yet kingdom, where Jesus has brought the kingdom, but at the same time it's not fully realized, it's not fully here yet. And understandably, this is a difficult thing to understand, this now but not yet kingdom. So I I don't want to talk about what it is maybe as much as I want to give an example of what it feels like. What it feels like. And I'll give you an example from our own lives that I bet you you can relate to a little bit. Um, So my daughters really like this uh, YouTuber named Mariah Elizabeth. I don't know if anybody watched her. If you've got young kids, she's super fun. She's become very famous because she gets these old squishies that are kind of like broken down, and she fixes them and she paints them. And that's all she does. And, uh, but 8 million followers, all, a lot of her views have like 4 or 5 million hits. If you have girls in your life that are below probably the age of 15, they probably know Mariah Elizabeth. Um, and so, um, any, like any smart YouTuber, she has monetized her success. And so she has a store of all these different things that you can buy. Um, and one of her most popular characters is this one called Georgie the Pineapple Duck. Georgie the Pineapple Duck. Um, I just thought to myself as I made this slide, I bet you this is the first time Georgie the Pineapple Duck and the word Advent have been on a slide at the same time. So you're witnessing history right now, okay? So anyways, my daughter really likes her, really likes uh, this, this duck. So she wanted to buy some stuff. And uh, I think it was like her birthday or something like this. So, so we, Sarah and her went online and she purchased a, a shirt and some shorts with Georgie the Pineapple Duck on them. So my wife paid for them put her credit card information, pressed, you know, complete or whatever. So the money has now gone out from us to Mariah Elizabeth. And then we wait. And we wait. And we wait. And we wait. And you can just imagine, so my daughter's nine. She's used to an Amazon life where literally we order it and it's there like later. Or we also order our groceries and Sarah will order them at like two. They get there at like five. This is what she's thinking in her mind. Six weeks we wait. Every day she comes home, every package she sees, is that my shirt? Are these my shorts? And she's living in this this moment of waiting. And it's just excruciating for her because the money has gone out. We've paid. They're technically ours, but we haven't received 
the item yet. And this is the example of what I think it feels like to live in this moment. The Bible says, the, the, the story is the same, that God has repossessed our world through Jesus, but it hasn't landed yet. It's not on our front porch. We haven't received it into our hands. And it's important to say that this moment of living in this tension is not fun. It's not a super fun thing. At least it hasn't been in our house. I'll tell you, waiting for this t-shirt and shorts has been excruciating. And uh, so far, the shorts just haven't arrived. So this kind of is like the kingdom of God. It's just like, we don't know where they are. We're like, maybe it will be here, you know. Maybe it's the rapture. Maybe it's these Georgie the pineapple shorts. We don't know what's happening. But that's how it feels. And, and our daughter will still, every like week, she'll just bring it up, usually backhandedly, where she's like, well, I didn't get, you know, can you clean your room? It's like, well, I didn't get my shorts. And you're like, okay, wow. Um, right? But we want to resolve this tension. And, and Sarah has gone online to try to resolve this problem, to deal with it. And, and many of you can probably... Uh, understand what that feels like, whether you've been online with like UPS or on the phone with UPS or Canada Post, where you're like, where's my package? And they're like, you, what is package? You're like, no, where is it? I paid for it. I just want to know when it's getting here. And it's just stuck in the ether or in some random port somewhere. And that's what it feels like, is to be in this in-between waiting time. And we want to resolve it, just like you want to resolve getting a package. And so the church tries to do that as well. We try to push out the tension of this moment of living in the now but not yet kingdom. And there's two options by which to do this. Number one is that we can just assume that God is never going to return. That this darkness is all that there is. That's all that we see. It will never change. There's no hope. Or we can try to force the kingdom to come now. We can try to move to one of those poles of light, pretending that the light has already come in fullness in this moment. But neither of those are true to the moment that we find ourselves in. We have to learn how to live in this tension. Um, James K.A. Smith speaks wonderfully about how we live in this tension in this moment in his great book, How to Inhabit Time. He says this, the practice of Advent patience pushes back on the Christian temptation to live ahead of time, to live ahead of time, to pretend that we're already in the kingdom when we're not. Advent patience refuses right-wing theonomies that would forget this waiting and try to install the kingdom by political machinations. Basically this idea that if we just got Christians into power, everything would work out and the kingdom would come. We have to resist that. That's part of Advent. But it equally pushes back on any progressive utopianism that imagines that the full arrival of justice could just be achieved by our efforts at social social amelioration. amelioration. Sorry. This idea that if, you know, this kind of like John Lennon, uh, I can only imagine idea, that if we just got our social programs right, everything would be good and the kingdom would truly come. He continues, both of these ideas assume that the arrival of the kingdom is up to us and hence something that we should fight to impose. And both of these are failures to live into the realities of Christ the King and waiting of Advent, of this moment that we find ourselves in, where Christ is king, where he's seated and reigning and ruling, but we're also waiting. Not to mention the cross-shaped life of a people who image Christ in this moment in time. That's the moment we find ourselves in, is a giant moment of tension. So how do we live in this moment? How, how, how do we learn how to wait? Not falling into this moment where all we see is darkness, it's all going to hell in a handbasket, or trying to pull God's kingdom into coming right now, trying to make it happen through our own efforts. Well, I want to just talk about two things. 
that we need to do, I think, to live in this moment. The first is that we need to learn to name the darkness. We need to learn to name the darkness. This is what Luke is doing for us when he says, Zechariah and Elizabeth are barren. They can't have kids. When he starts his story that way, he's naming the darkness for us in this moment. This is what the prophets do when they use poetic language to expose the sin amongst God's people. And this is what the psalmists do when they cry out, God, where are you? I don't know where you are. Everything looks dire and black. And there's two parts to naming the darkness. The first part is this, that you have to be willing to see the darkness in this moment. And then the second is that you have to be able to name it. You have to say, say it out loud. So you have to see it and name it. And that means we can't ignore it. We can't ignore, we shouldn't ignore the darkness around us. As Fleming Rutledge says, the church must be a place that takes fearless inventory of the darkness. And then the second is that we have to learn to say it out loud. This becomes our prophetic task as the church. This becomes our protest song. To not only see, but to say. Now you might wonder why. Why do we need to name the darkness? Why is that so important? Let me give you a few reasons why. The first is that it helps prepare us for the light. That's what Advent is all about, is is learning to prepare ourselves for receiving Jesus, the good news, the light that's come into the world. And the admission that we live in darkness and we are a people of darkness is also a recognition that we need light. It's not just navel-gazing, it's not just woe is meing, it's actually preparing ourselves to receive the light. It's very similar to the idea of fasting, if you've ever done that. It's a classic spiritual discipline and it's part of our rule of life. When we take time not to eat, we remind ourselves of our need for food of our desire for food, of our need for hungry, hunger, or our hunger, sorry. If you go into that meeting and your stomach is just growling uncontrollably because you haven't eaten, you remind yourself that you need food. You're reminded all the time as you salivate, as you watch your coworkers eat a sandwich and you're just like staring at them in the eyes. You know, that, this idea that I need food. And it's the same idea. When we ch- take time to name the darkness, we prepare ourselves and we remind ourselves that we need the light. The second reason is that we find, when we, when we name the darkness, we actually find a new resonance with God. We find a new resonance with God. Now, this seems paradoxical for many of us because of the way that we think about God and we think about what the Christian story is and the ways that we've, I'd say, shoehorned our Canadian story into the Bible. And one of my favorite words to describe this is this word, um, bodlerize, bodlerize. I was going to make you guys say it along with me, but you don't have to. Um, I hate it. I, is this one funny thing about preaching? I would never, if a preacher was like, say this along with me, I would never do it from the seats. But as when I'm preaching, I sometimes feel the need to, to do that to you. I don't know. It's a really, I, I think more counseling is in order in 2023. Um, so bodlerize. This is a great word if you're going to a Christmas party and you want everybody to leave you alone. Uh, you can just pull out this word. Uh, and I learned it from Charles Taylor, who is a Canadian philosopher, who is also a great person to quote if you don't want anyone to hang out with you at a Christmas party. But he, he wrote this. Bodlerizing is a tendency to write out the ineradicable suffering, tragedy, or conflict of life. Basically, this idea that we sanitize the world and we remove anything from the world, we don't talk about it, that things that aren't to our liking, specifically the negative. And, and uh, Taylor says, specifically in our moment in history, religion tends to bodlerize reality. This is what we tend to do, focus on the positive and say nothing about the negative. And I've said this many times before, that our expectations as Canadians is that we'll live a really good life. If I'm just a modest average Canadian, I will live a great life. 
or good life, sorry. And so we experience or we're, we're expecting advance upon advance. That's how we expect our lives to go, just building block upon building block, things to get better and better over time. It's a triumph and success orientation that we have. And so our God, that we, we think of God, the way that we think of him, he has to match that story that we're telling ourselves. That he has to be a god of the mountaintops. Or if you're here a few weeks ago, when I talked about it, he's the god of the balloon dogs. A god who makes everything smooth. That's our expectations. And so what happens is, when we get to the valleys of life, when we experience the warts and the seams of life, we have no vision for where God is. We don't understand where he could be amidst the darkness. And I'm not just saying this about you. I'm saying this about me. This is 100% true of me. And I'll give you an example from my own life. So just over three years ago, almost exactly three years ago, I became the pastor uh, here at Reality. And if you would have asked me, I would have never said I have this success and triumph orientation about the church. I would be like, oh, just humble. We just want to stay the same and just minister you know, humbly to people. But in the back of my mind, this story was going, that we'll have success upon success, gain upon gain. And then in uh, early March, I had the worst, what I would say is the worst week of my life. On Monday, I had to go to the hospital On Tuesday, I found out I was diagnosed with colon cancer. On Friday, I started chemo and radiation. And on on Sunday, the world shut down because of COVID. The worst week of my life. And on Saturday, the worst part of it is I locked my keys in the office and I had to walk somewhere. That was just a topper where I was like, really? Okay. (laughs) Tough week. And, And... as it did for many of us at that time, my, my, the darkness that I would talk about before would kind of be a very generic darkness. Oh, yes, yeah, there's darkness in the world. You know, there's, there's sin, there's suffering. At that moment, it became very specific. These are the things I'm going through. These are the things that we're going through. And I realized that I had no language for lament with God. I only had language for generic generic talking about darkness, and I only had language that would, for God to lift me out of that moment. And what I found, though, as, or sorry, I had no vision for God in the darkness, and I, I realized the only thing that I could think about was that God would be completely absent from that moment. That's the only thing I could understand. But here's what I found. As I learned to lament, and as we all did, as the pandemic went on longer and longer and longer, I learned to name the darkness. I found that God actually wasn't distant in that moment. He was just very present. I just couldn't see him because it was dark. That he was right there in my pain and in my suffering and in my anger. You know, Shell last week talked about Christ the King. But we have to remember that Christ our King reigning and ruling has scars. He comes with holes in his hands. He knows what it's like to bleed. He knows what it's like to suffer. And that's the Jesus that I met in that moment. And it was actually ended up being a deeply resonant experience for me at that time. And I realized not only was God there, but there was actually an invitation to me in that moment. And it wasn't for instant healing, which I prayed for, and I know many of you prayed for. It wasn't for the pandemic to be over, which we also prayed for. And I just thought, man, wouldn't that be like a, just a phenomenal thing? It's like, think of this on the, on the head of the Vancouver Sun. It's like, local pastor cured of cancer and also finds the cure for COVID. Like, wouldn't that have been good for me and for us and for our church? be like, I know this pastor that something crazy happened to you. I would have loved for that to be my story. But instead, the the invitation for God in that moment wasn't for that. It was actually to change. It was to learn to wait. And it was to learn to meet him and transform and become a new person. And these moments of darkness can be these resonant moments with God, where we learn to actually see him in the darkness. 
And that leads to the next thing, is that when we name the darkness, we can also find new resonance with the story of God. So Monday to Friday, every day, as I, I went through chemo and radiation, well, through radiation, I had to go into BC Cancer and go to the radiation table. And it was about 10 minutes. It's kind of this humiliating time. You take your clothes off in front of all these people you don't know, and you lie face down on this table and receive radiation. And one of the things, you know, the first little bit, I was just like, woe is me. You know, oh, this is just the worst. It's embarrassing. And I, I had a point in time where I was like, you know what, you're just being, you're just being a whiner. And so what I did is I started praying Psalm 23 every day that I lied down on that table. And I would just start praying through the psalm. And, and I've known this psalm since I was a little kid, and probably many of you did. I've been praying it since I was probably seven years old. I pray it almost every night with our kids. And I realized that these words, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, you're with me. These words took on a completely new meaning to me. I've been praying them since I was a little kid. But in that moment... I realized they took on a completely new meaning. And this is what happens when we choose to read God's story along with the darkness. You know, how many, how many of you have heard the Christmas story hundreds of times, but you've never taken the moment to just think about Zechariah and Elizabeth and what they went through for their whole life? But maybe that it goes along with your story. Maybe you know what it's like to, to not be able to have kids, to go through times of infertility. You know what it's like to just wait and wait and wait and wait and feels like God is just not going to show up. And when we choose to name the darkness and be honest about it, we will find new friends in God's story. Because I will tell you, reading it through my cancer journey, there are so many voices that I just didn't see and know when I was trying to live in the light and reach for the light. When I chose and was forced to name the darkness, I found new friends and I found a new God. So not only do we create resonance with God and resonance with God's story, but we also create resonance with one another. Sarah mentioned this earlier, but tonight we're going to have a lament night in our community. And so five people from our community are going to share their story. Or they're going to come and they're going to name the darkness. And maybe it's from their own story and what they're going through in their own life. Maybe it's from the lives of others, or maybe it's just things that are dark in our city and in our world. But they're always both simultaneously the hardest nights of the year, we come and we just listen to friends bear their hearts for us. And at the same time, it ends up being one of the most resonant times of the year. You know, after we did one of the first lament nights, I just started asking a few people, because I'm like, this is new to our community. I don't know if it's going to go well. So I asked a few people, like, what did you think? Was it okay? And one person told me, that was the best church service I've ever been a part of. I was like, oh, phew, good. They said, yeah, it was better than anything you've ever preached. And I was like, you could have stopped kind of like before that sentence, but they're like, but they're just naming that these moments where people open themselves up honestly and just share about the darkness are deeply resonant moments for us because they create resonance between each other, these moments of connection, but they also allow us, as Sarah said, and as we studied in Galatians 6, these moments where we can bear and carry one another's burdens and actually be the family of God together. So that's going to happen tonight at uh, 7.30. It won't be recorded, so if you're not here uh, you can't listen to it again, but you're just invited to that time. No shame if you can't come, but it's an opportunity for us to gain resonance with one another by naming the darkness and live into Advent together. And then finally, when we name the darkness in our lives, we align ourselves with people who live in darkness. When we, when we choose to name the darkness, we align ourselves with those who live in darkness. 
Because the language of the prophets, for example, is giving voice to those who dwell in darkness. And there's two groups of people who dwell in darkness. There's people who dwell in darkness and they don't know it. And there's people who dwell in darkness and they do know it. And the prophetic language is, is to both. On one hand, it's to those who live in the light. They think they live in the light, but they actually live in darkness. And so part of our task is to name the darkness, to show them in a, in a city that just tries to, to, to gear everything towards being smooth, towards being clean, that there is darkness underneath in our lives and in our world. And that can be really hard, but it can also be a deep source of honesty. You know, I, have a, I had a friend one time, uh, he, he came to one of our gatherings. He became a Christian later in life, but through his own uh, faults, and then through the faults of, of people around him, he's walked away from faith. But he came to one of our gatherings once, and it was just a regular gathering, but somebody came and did a gospel storyteller and shared, as we often do. And the person just started breaking down and crying. And it was slightly awkward for all of us that were sitting there. And I talked to my friend afterwards, and uh, I asked him, like, what do you think? You know, what did you think of that whole gathering? And he said, you know, um, if I ever come back to faith, this is the kind of group of people that I want to be a part of. Because you're honest. And I was thinking, like, but what about my sermon? It was like, it was like, an, it's like a 9 out of 10, right? And he's like, he didn't even remember anything. He remembered that one moment where someone was honest enough to cry and name the darkness. And he was going through his own darkness at the time that I didn't even know about. And he just wanted to see people that were honest and open. And when we name the darkness, there are people who are living in the light and they feel compelled to just say everything's good and everything's smooth. And it can be our prophetic witness to them to say, it's not okay. We name the darkness, but we also have hope in Jesus. On the other hand, naming the darkness gives voice to those who dwell in the darkness and do know it. You know, there's a theologian, his name's uh, Nicholas Waldersdorf, and he talks about the prophetic language in the, in the Hebrew scriptures is usually geared towards four groups of people. He calls it the quartet of the vulnerable. The widow, the orphan, the poor, and the uh, foreigner. These are the people in their society who were ignored the people who were looked over, the people who didn't have a voice, the people who were not people. And when prophetic language names the darkness, it's saying the whole world may, may not see you. The whole world may choose to look over you, but God does not. He sees your plight, and he even takes up your voice, and in Jesus, he comes, and he takes on your suffering and your sin. He knows what it's like. And so when we name the darkness, we align ourselves with those people who know that they live in darkness, and by doing so, we open up a possibility for them to hear about the light. And that's the second thing that we need to do when we live in this waiting, is we need to learn to hope. You know, I think about it like this. If, if naming the darkness is kind of eyes down, it's like looking at this moment and seeing it for what it is. It's being honest about what's going on in our world and our lives and our community. Then, then learning to hope is raising our eyes back up again to these two moments of history, the climaxes of salvation history that we live between. One is that Jesus has come, that Christ has come, that God has not forgotten us, but that he's actually come. And then the second is that Christ will come again. Fleming Rutledge puts it this way, kind of wrapping everything up all together. She says, At the heart of Advent season is the proclamation that God did not remain where he was, high above the misery of his creation, but he came down incognito into the midst of it. He did not come down merely to sympathize. Jesus came not only for the poor and the wretched of the earth, but also for the lonely people on the upper level. 
in the bar, the commuters and the suburbanites who spend their dollars mostly on themselves, to those who live in darkness and those who think they live in light but live in darkness. That's the first part of the story. Jesus has come. And here's the second part. To each and all we bring this announcement. God will come. And his justice will prevail. And he will destroy evil and pain in all its forms once and forever. To be a Christian is to live in expectation of that fulfillment. And the life of the church, lived in solidarity with those in darkness, carries with it the embodiments of a certainty that when he comes again, it will be the God of mercy and no one else and it will be morning. This is our hope, that we have to stay rooted in that Christ has come, and we celebrate that in Advent. We prepare ourselves now by naming the darkness, but we, we, we prepare to celebrate that light has come, that God has not forgotten us, but he has come. And with that, as our, as our faith, then we learn to hope that God will come again, that he will make all things right, that everything sad will become untrue and we'll learn to partner with him in the new heaven and the new earth. Let's pray in closing. God, we thank you for the opportunity to start this new year, that you have given us uh, another year to be here, to breathe, to live, to be with one another, and to be with you. I just think of, of some of the last words that are written in the New Testament, the words Maranatha, come, Come, Jesus, come. And so we pray that you would teach us what that means as a group of people. To live in this moment where we, we name the darkness, even though there's, there's wonderful and great things, that, that even those things in our lives are fleeting. That we, we long for you to come. And may we live in between these two great moments with the, the hope and the faith that you have come as we look towards uh, Christmas, but also that you will come once again. And so we, we, we invite you into this time and we pray that you would just position our hearts towards that, that language and that experience and that desire for that you would come once again. We pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen.